launching a brand new teaching series today called Balanced, where we're looking at uh, the Christian's relationship to money. Now, that's been a hot and cold relationship historically, and it's probably been a hot and cold relationship for some of you, too. Uh, I recently searched some top news stories about the state of our economy, and they said words like recession, uh, bracing, job cuts, and uh, I don't know about you, maybe you're nervous about what's ahead, maybe you're unsure about what retirement looks like for you, uh, maybe you're just hoping to make ends meet this month, maybe you're mindlessly accumulating debt, or, or maybe you just aren't super intentional about your financial life. Or Maybe you felt pretty good a few years ago, like the government was handing out money, nobody was traveling or eating out, and some reserves were building up. Maybe you took a new job that paid a lot more, and, and everything seemed like it was up and to the right, now suddenly it feels like the bottom is about to fall out. No one enjoys the stress of an unbalanced financial life, but all too often that's where we find ourselves. It can leave you stressed out, it can leave you at odds with your spouse if you're married, it can leave you sideways in your relationship with God. And, and thankfully, the Bible includes a lot of instructions about how to approach your finances. And so in this series about money, we're going to explore what a balanced financial life grounded in biblical principles look like, and, and really the peace of mind that comes with it. Jesus was very clear that the greatest battle for our hearts will come from money. It's a source of spiritual bondage for so many people. Some of you find yourself saying, like, I'd, I'd give almost anything to feel freed up, to feel liberated financially. Like, you don't necessarily want to be mega rich. You just, want, you just want to be released from the worry and from the frustration over finances. I believe that's what God wants for you, too. Like, his plan is a plan of freedom, not bondage. It's within the heart of God to wish for every single one of you a certain amount of liberation in the area of money management so that your life could be about the stuff that's most important, more important than money. And so that's what we're going to talk about this month. Today we're going to look at working, and then we're going to look at planning and spending and then giving. It'll be fun, <laughs> but I do need to call out the elephant in the room. I'm very aware that when a guy like me stands in a pulpit like this and talks about money, everyone gets all twitchy. The, the fear in you is that that dude is trying to get money out of my pocket into his offering plate. I want to assure you that this series is coming because we want something for you, not because we want something from you. You know, Jesus taught about money more than heaven and hell combined. You know why? Because for better or worse, day to day, we think about money more than we think about heaven and hell combined. Christ came to where we're at. And the Bible is very helpful in our real everyday lives. He knew this was a subject everyone would be thinking about a lot. I'm also aware that some of you are guests today. In your first week at Grace, you will always look back at You Came During the Money series. So let, just let it be a badge of honor, okay? Let me put you at ease. Actually, you, you picked a really great week to be here because I think this is one of the most relevant, uh, relevant but misunderstood topics in the entire Bible. If I were to summarize the teachings of the Bible into one simple phrase, it, it would not be give all your money to the church. It would not even be give all your money to the poor. Uh, really, a summary of the whole Council of Scripture on this subject would go something like this. If you don't learn to control your money, it will control you. And so we're going to look at it with eyes wide open. And I'd like you to turn with me today to Colossians 3, 22 to 24, in your Bible or device. And today my sermon is about work, the source of most of our money. And some of you are thinking a sermon on work, sermon work, sermon work. Sounds like a double shot of boring. 
<laughs> but I, I, listen, I think we're in desperate need of some clear thinking about our work. And so I wanna just read our text to you today. Paul says this in Colossians 3. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And so here's today's big idea. We honor God with our faithful work. Work is going through an interesting identity crisis these days. Between the, the great resignation and the great reshuffle that happened as a result of COVID and the rise of side hustles and the freelance economy and the popularity of remote work and people not necessarily wanting to leave their homes to go to work anymore. And then there's a stigma around younger employees that they always avoid hard work or difficult projects. Many employers in many industries are just looking for any workers who will show up and just be reliable. And at the same time, layoffs are imminent due to pending recession. On top of it all, chat GPT bursts onto the scene, along with AI and other automations. Are, they're changing the game, not just in the blue-collar space anymore, but robots have entered the white-collar world as well. It's an interesting time for work. And so we need to come back to some foundational conversations about work, at the very least, because we spend so much time there. Do you realize that over a lifetime, the average per person spends 100,000 hours working at their job? Next to sleep, that's how we will spend the vast majority of, of our time on this earth. And at the same time, there's been a lot of confusion about a Christian's relationship to work. Is work good or is it bad? Is it a blessing or is it part of the curse? Like, wasn't it part of the fall? Is it something that we should just endure so that we can do actually spiritual endeavors in our lives? Like, is work something we should throw our, our whole selves into or just retreat from? Like, how should Christians approach work? I'll just remind you from the outset that God and, and Jesus were both workers. I know I'm showing my hand here. But in Genesis 1 and 2, we see a God with his hands in the dirt. He's working. He's, he's creating. So, so work is not evil. It's part of God's makeup. And then when he finishes his work, do you remember what he does? He steps back and he says, man, that looks really good. And then when it came to mankind, look at how Genesis 2.15 frames it. It says that the Lord, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And so here we have the Bible, the first mention of the word work. And he says, remember, this is before the fall, before the curse. This is before sin entered the scene. This is still the untainted paradise of perfection, and God wants work to be happening. So we were made for work, and I find it fascinating that the, the Hebrew word here in this passage for work is the word avad, which is the same root word that's used for the word worship. And so work is tied to our worship. It's tied inseparably to, inseparably to our spiritual lives right from the beginning. So Adam worshiped God in the garden, not just by worshiping and praying and staying away from some certain apples. He, he worshiped God by doing the work God put him in the garden to do. You see, God gave mankind work to enjoy it and for our benefit, for the benefit of others. Adam and Eve were tasked with, with growing things. That's physical work. But they were also tasked with developing culture, like naming things, naming animals. That's intellectual work. And it says they were fruitful in it. So God was a worker, and he created us to be workers. And of course, you know, Jesus was a worker. He was a carpenter for the first 30 years of his life. He was a laborer. He was creative. He had a full-time job before spending the last three years of his life in ministry working only on Sundays. You know, since it's apparently what people in ministry do. So, so listen, God is concerned about your work. Work is good. 
In fact, there are three ways I think work benefits you, at least. One, it allows you to provide for your family. Paul wrote, if a man will not work, he shall not eat, in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. But it also develops your character. So it's been said that while the carpenter is building a house, the house is also building the carpenter. His or her skill and dexterity are refined along with things like diligence and patience and judgment. So, so a job is not just a task designed to earn money. It's also intended to produce godly character in the life of the worker. And then three, work gives you an outlet for the skills God has entrusted to you. So because God has given each person unique skills and talents, Scripture doesn't evaluate any occupation above another. Like, like a wide variety of jobs are represented in the Bible. David was a shepherd and eventually a king. Luke was a doctor. Lydia was a retailer who sold purple fabric. Daniel was a politician. Paul was a tent maker. So there's this sense that all work is from God and all work is ultimately for God. But, but we don't often think about this in that context. And so, again, I want to come back to our main text in Colossians 3. And I want to talk today about three ways to connect your work to God's work. Go back to Colossians 3.23. Paul says, whatever you do, whatever you do. So, so the first way is to make every job worshipful. Whatever you do is a pretty all-consuming statement. So, so are you on a road crew? Do you work in a cubicle? Are you a plumber? Are you a professor? Do you run a machine at a shop? Are you a teacher, a stay-at-home parent, a CEO, a bus driver, a marketing director, a social worker, a musician, a butcher, baker, candlestick maker? Paul says, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. That it's possible to make every job an act of worship. And so, so we like to divide work up into different categories. So, and it's so that we can consider some work more important than other work. So we, we call things like skilled versus manual. We call things like management versus the labor force. White collar versus blue collar. But the Bible seems to teach that there's no work that's menial and that all work has dignity. It's actually very countercultural in this way. And by the way, Paul makes a very radical statement over in 1 Thessalonians 4. When he's giving advice about holy living, he says, live a quiet life, mind your own business, work with your hands. Now, this was actually a radical statement. It was a smack in the face of the dominant culture. Greeks and Romans believed that some work was degrading, that the world of the mind was higher work, but the working with your hands was degrading. And so Paul goes out of his way to encourage people who work with their hands because all work, he's suggesting, has dignity and value before God. Anytime you are bringing order out of chaos, you are taking the material world that God loves and you're redeeming it and making it livable. And by participating with God in this work, in restoring the earth, you're actually worshiping him. Another dividing line that we draw sometimes is between sacred and secular work. And so we say that sacred work, the, the work that God notices, is like the work of pastors and worship leaders and missionaries. That's the spiritual work. And then there's everyone else, the secular work. But the truth is, you can make any job sacred by how you approach it. Now, there are some exceptions, jobs that are inherently sinful, like you can't rob banks to the glory of God. You can't deal drugs or produce porn or whatever and, and try to make that sacred. But if it's not inherently evil, whatever you do can be done for God. In fact, we should go to work for the same reasons we go to church, to worship God and to serve people. You see, in our jobs, we can participate in God's restorative work in this world, bringing order out of chaos. Each career brings with it a restorative purpose. 
So, I'll give you some examples. Consider the surgeon, for example. At, the, at, at its core being, a doctor, being a doctor is not about money. It's not about status. It's about relieving suffering. It's about extending healing. And by doing so, a surgeon is participating with God in his restorative work. Or take lawyers, for example. You're, you're not taking on new clients to try to make a living. But you get to share in and participate in God's deep concern for justice. Christian, this is the lens through which we must see our work. You may say, well, it's easy to see how, you know, being doctors or bring healing or lawyers who bring justice. I'm a laborer. My work doesn't have the same restorative potential. Listen, maybe you're on a road maintenance crew that's repairing the roads and you're thinking, how is my work worshiping God? Well, at face value, it doesn't, may not seem spiritual or like it really makes this huge difference in the world, but it does. Let's think about this for a minute. Think about the places we can travel in hours that a couple hundred years ago would have taken days, maybe weeks. So, so you, Mr. or Mrs. Road Maintenance Worker, are helping people drive to Pittsburgh to see a sick friend or a relative and to get there quickly. You are assisting out-of-town family with, to, to, with rekindling their relationships over a meal or a weekend stay. Every year, Kathy Schriefer has Operation Christmas Child trucks rumbling down those same roads filled with important packages that are gonna to go to distribution centers and sent out to kids all over the world. Do you know how important properly maintained roads are to the good of a society and to the glory of God? If you wanna know, just go try and do ministry in a country that doesn't have good roads. Like come on a trip with us sometimes, sometime to Haiti. Ask our partners in Capetian what a difference one, one, just one properly paved road makes to get you one from one side of the city to the other, to serve others, to deliver food, to pray for a needy church member, to get kids to school. Again, I'm just using this in a, as an example, but I'm saying don't immediately take your occupation and assume that because your work doesn't have you serving in an orphanage or something, that your work isn't spiritual, and that it doesn't have a huge impact on the lives of others. See, you can make every job worshipful. The second way to connect your work to God's work is to work hard. Verse, verse 23 says it this way, work heartily. And, and this sounds very basic, but if, but if your work is done unto the Lord, it should have the highest standards of excellence. The Bible consistently encourages diligence and hard work. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Proverbs 12.27 says, The precious possession of a man is diligence. This, this is just good old-fashioned hard work. And some people don't work hard at their jobs. There's a, a bunch of reasons. Some people are lazy, like you become lazy. And the Bible has really harsh words for people who are lazy. So, some don't work hard because they feel entitled or, or they're endlessly holding out for the perfect job, the perfect opportunity, waiting for that big break. And there are some who don't work hard because they're in a difficult situation. Their boss is a jerk. Their conditions are hard. The hours are long. And they say, you know what? I'm just going to check out. I'm just going to take my paycheck and go home. There's an interesting new term coined recently called quiet quitting. Quiet quitting refers to employees who still collect their paycheck. And at the same time, they're putting in the barest minimum effort into their job. In fact, 2022 Gallup survey suggested that at least half of the U.S. workforce consists of quiet quitters. Half. I'm just here to tell you today, quiet quitting is not an option for Christians. Work heartily, our passage says, as unto the Lord. There's another aspect to this hard work thing, and that is to be good at your craft. 
Sometimes people think that the only way to be a Christian at work is to, you know, to not lie and not cheat and not steal and don't sleep with your coworkers and maybe invite a person to church every once in a while. I'd agree with all that, but do you know that one of the main ways to honor Christ at your job is to be really good at your job? Like, this is one of the ways to honor Christ as an accountant is to be a really good accountant, to be a really good teacher, to be a really great fireman. Dorothy Sayer, writing in the early 1900s, said it this way. She said, the church's advice to a carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. He should go to church by all means, but what use is it if in the very center of his life and occupation he is insulting God with bad carpentry? No crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. Nor, if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth. No piety in the worker will compensate for work that is not true to itself. For any work that is untrue to its own technique is a living lie. So, is there a Christian way to drive in a nail? No, but, but there is a right and wrong way. Is there a Christian way to run a bulldozer or write up an insurance claim or punch out a widget on your machine? No, but there is a good way and a bad way. And I think that as Christians, we must work hard to do things the good way, the right way, because of our faith. Because all work has dignity and value. You see, when you work hard, even in mundane things, you're pleasing God and you're serving your fellow man. I came across a list that I thought was some great Christian advice. It's, it's called a practical, the, the practical characteristics of diligent workers. Diligent workers, these are hard workers. They're things like show up on time. Like every day, diligent workers keep their word. You want me there at eight? I'm there at eight. Next, clarify what is expected of them. Like if there's any fuzziness in their job description, they take the initiative with their supervisor to get clarity so that they can do it really well. Diligent workers exceed expectations regularly and joyfully. Attitude matters. Great workers play nice with fellow workers. It's not all about them. They enjoy building up the team. Diligent workers honor their supervisors. They also admit mistakes. Like this is one of the great misunderstandings in the workplace. People think that if they take responsibility and admit a mistake, that their stock is gonna go down on the team. Actually what happens when you take responsibility for a mistake is your stock goes up. Diligent workers also share credit with teammates. Nobody likes a credit hog. Finally, they, they resolve conflict quickly. That's a great description of a diligent, godly worker. And there are some of you today listening to this message who need to, be, to hear that, who need to be exhorted again to work heartily, work diligently. Don't cash it in. Don't be lazy. Don't quiet quit. Don't be entitled. Don't whine every time you're asked to do something difficult. Work hard, okay? But... There are others who need to be exhorted that you are working too hard. There's been a recent explosion of side hustles. And listen, I'm not suggesting that everyone who has a side hustle is guilty of this because I think generally they can be a really good thing at bringing in some extra income, getting ahead in certain areas. But let, let me also remind you that working hard doesn't mean chasing every dollar and it doesn't mean sacrificing important things like family and other obligations and slacking off at your main job in the process by engaging in around-the-clock work. 
that there are a lot of names for this new normal, freelancing, gigging, contracting, side hustling, consulting, sharing, moonlighting, whatever you want to call it, it's a very real thing. And we live in the days that if you own a car, all of a sudden you can fill every spare moment driving people around with Uber, or driving packages around for Amazon, or driving food around with DoorDash. If you're a graphic designer, you can work as often as you'd like. If you love dogs, there's an app to be a dog walker. If you have a house, you can have someone sleeping on your couch or your spare room at any moment, any day of the week. And this has led to an epidemic for some of around-the-clock work. And, 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 and instead of being careful about it, it's seen as heroic. Recently, an online hub for freelancers ran an ad campaign around New York City called The Year of the Do, with a, with a catchy tagline, Endures We Trust. Here's one of the ads for The Year of the Do. It says, you eat coffee for lunch. You follow through on your follow through. Sleep depri deprivation is your drug of choice. If those things are true, you might be a doer. So working 80 or 100 hours per week has become a badge of honor, like a status symbol. But listen, God didn't make you for round-the-clock working. And if you're not careful, the whole freelance scene can begin to feed a dangerous lie in you. And the lie goes something like this. You are what you do. Your ability to produce becomes your identity. And it's a lie because it never ends. There's always more to do. There's always someone out there hustling harder than you. And when you do and do and do and do, it will not be long until you forget how to be. And who you are will start getting lost. Your true identity will start getting lost. Your true identity as child of God, as servant of Christ, as saved by grace. You are those things, not because of what you can do, but because of who he made you to be. You are not called a human doing. You are called a human being. So yes, work heartily. Work heartily. But don't be consumed by your doing. So we've said you can connect to God through your work by making every job worshipful, by working hard. The third way is this, to remember that God is your true boss. Note, notice verse 23 says you, you work as for the Lord and not for men. And later on he says, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. No pressure. <laughs> but guess what? I'm not the only one here today who works for God. You work for God too. And that doesn't mean that you're supposed to turn your career into some weird Christian slogan. Like if you own a coffee shop and you're going, well, Derek said God is my boss, so maybe I better change the name of my coffee shop to Hebrews. You know, just being weird. Or you, you start forcing awkward moments into your sales calls. Like, hey, Joe, listen, now that I've sold your life insurance, how about, how, how about some insurance on what happens after this life is over? Or, you know, that sounds great, Sue. I've got your name on our mailing list. But more important question is, is your name on God's saving list, the Lamb's Book of Life? Okay, that's not what I'm talking about. Okay, what this means that God is your boss is that every job you do, every assignment you complete, every chore you accomplish at the house, every paper you turn in at school, you are doing it first for Christ. You have a higher boss than your employer, than your supervisor, than your teacher. You work for a greater reward than your salary. He says it here, it's an inheritance from him. So, so, so essentially you have a new set of bottom lines. And it may mean at times that there are things that you can't participate in at work when you're being asked to do things that are unethical or deceptive. But mainly it means that you see your work from God's perspective. You see, if God is your boss, you see your work through his eyes. If God is your boss, you see all your coworkers and clients as people deeply loved by God and worthy of your love and respect. 
If God is your boss, you view every situation, every encounter as an opportunity for God's grace and God's truth to be on display. Fundamentally, your main job is to please God, not your target market, not your client base, not your supervisor or CEO. You're answering to God himself. The reformer Martin Luther painted a, a big picture of how God loves and cares for people on earth using all of our occupations working together for the common good. This is another way that God is our boss. He, he said that our jobs are actually God's way of, of caring for humanity. Luther pointed out in passages like Psalm 147, 13 and 14 that says this. It says, for he, that's God, strengthens the bars of your gates and he blesses your children within you and, and he makes peace in your borders and he fills you with the finest of wheat. And how does God do all of these things? Luther insightfully asks, how does God strengthen the bars of our cities? How does God uh, do that? Well, it's through city planners. It's through architects. It's through politicians who pass good laws and protect the city. How does he bless our children within our midst? Well, through the work of teachers and pediatricians and social workers. How does he make peace in our borders? Well, by means of good lawyers and policemen. How, how does he fill us with the finest of wheat? Well, by farmers and factory workers and restaurant owners. This is, we are working for God for the good of our society. In a great little book called God at Work, Jean Edward Veith adds, we might today add to this list truck drivers who hauled the produce and the factory workers in the food processing plant and the warehouse employees, who, who, the, the wholesale distributors, the stock boys and the lady at the checkout counter also playing their part are the bankers and futures investors and advertisers, lawyers, agricultural scientists, mechanical engineers and every other player in the nation's economic system. All of these were instrumental in enabling you to eat your morning bagel. Though God could give it to us directly by a miraculous provision, as he once did for the children of Israel when he fed them daily with manna, God has chosen normally to work through human beings who in their different capacities and according to their different talents serve each other. So that means that, that God is present in the world through all of our vocations, providentially caring for mankind. Our professions, Luther said, are like the masks God wears in caring for the world. So God is giving you gifts through the work of others. And he's giving others gifts through your work. And so it's important every once in a while to step back and to ask some big picture questions about your work considering that God is your ultimate boss. Let me suggest maybe four new bottom lines for us to consider. One would be, who can I demonstrate God's love to at work? Two, how can my community be better served by what I do? Three, how can I model excellence and hard work to those that I work with? And four, how can my God-given gifts be maximized in my current position? The bottom line of your job should not be about making money, or it should not be about finding some identity or achieving some status, though, though those things may come. When you do work for one of those things, by the way, as your primary objective, those worldly bottom lines, work will usually either become too important or too unimportant. Like you'll either throw yourself too far into it and allow it to consume you and become your identity, as I described before, or it will become too, too unimportant and you will quiet quit or you'll just do it to get a paycheck. What I'm suggesting is there's a third way, and that is to connect your work to God's work. That's what we've been talking about. Now, 
Let me just say a quick word to employers and bosses and supervisors, which some of you are. Later in this very same letter, Paul's letter in Colossians 4.1, he, he, he makes another really revolutionary statement at the time. He gives a word to masters, and his word to masters was to be fair and just and even generous in their business practices. In those days, masters ran the show. They, owned, uh, or they owed nothing to, to their slaves or their employees. And so Paul called out the masters, and, and, and the same for us who oversee others in our work. He says, be fair in what wages you pay, be fair in what you require and expect of people, and be generous through encouragement and coaching and life-giving words and compensation over and above what's required. In your position of leadership, you have a tremendous opportunity to live out the faith you pro profess. But the moment you become greedy, the moment you become arrogant, the moment you start letting your position go to you, your head, you have lost your perspective on what you really have, which is simply a stewardship that God has entrusted to you. So, so don't you dare approach your role saying, this is my business and I'll run it however I want to because it's mine. Paul says, if you're a Christian leader, it's not your business, actually. You, Mr. Boss, Mrs. Boss, you also answer to a much more powerful boss who has allowed you in his graciousness to be in the position that you're in. So, so what you need to be saying is this is God's business. He has put me in charge of leading and managing it and I must run it as he would. I will be accountable to him for every dime spent, for every word spoken. So as I close today, let me remind you that no matter what you do for an occupation, you can be used by God there. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a missionary. You, you know, throughout church history, the gospel has always gone forward on the wings of business and industry. Remember, none of the 12 apostles were clergymen. They, they were business people. The, the early church always looked to the marketplace for leaders, not to religious institutions. So the gospels, they were written by workers. Matthew was a tax officer. Mark was a son of a merchant. Luke was a medical doctor. John was a fisherman. So how might you think of your bottom line differently to connect your work to God's work. So as a next step today, will you just pray this prayer? We ask this question, God, help me to understand how my work is connected to you. Maybe it has to do with seeing your work with new eyes, having a better attitude because you've recognized that ultimately you're doing God's work. Maybe it's a commitment to working harder. You've become lazy or you've quietly quit. Maybe it's an honesty or character thing. You've been dishonest in some of your practices or you've cut corners. You've allowed yourself to, to get away with it. Or maybe work has become too consuming. It's like become too important to you and it's filling voids that it was never meant to fill. Maybe you need to go into work this week and fix something or stop something, pull out of something, encourage someone, confront someone, love someone. But what is it for you? I think this prayer could be revolutionary for some of you. I love you guys. We honor God with our faithful work.